Well, good morning, everyone. Over uh, my career working for a number of different companies, I've had the opportunity to interview uh, quite a few people for different positions. But there was one time I got to interview someone, and it was really unique. I was looking for a salesman, and this guy, I'll call him Bob, Bob came highly recommended, very qualified, but he didn't really need a job. It made me question whether he really would fit well with what I was looking for, but I was really curious. And so I interviewed Bob. Uh, and Bob told me his story. Bob grew up uh, with a mom, a single mom. Uh, they lived week by week, paycheck by paycheck, barely scraping by. Uh, they had very little, no luxuries, no holidays, no car. And uh, that's really how Bob lived until he had the opportunity to get into university. And while Bob was at university, he met his wife. Uh, and his wife came from a very wealthy family, and not just wealthy, a really wealthy family. Uh, her father was very, very rich and made those riches available uh, to her children. Uh, and so through dating and getting engaged and then getting married, Bob had a life change. Uh, Bob went from having very little to having more than he could have ever imagined having. He went from being someone who probably felt really insignificant as far as the world was concerned, powerless, someone who very few people even knew his name. Uh, and he went to a point of where he had great significance, great power, uh, and hung around in very important circles. And I hired Bob. Despite there was reasons why maybe I shouldn't have hired him, I hired him. And I found as time went on, I started to wish that I had some of the things that Bob had. He had a very fat bank account. He drove whatever vehicle he wanted to. In fact, one day, and this is no lie, it was a Friday before a long weekend, and he said, Brent, do you know anyone that is looking to buy a truck? I said, well, not really. I said, what do you got? He says, we've got this old Ford Explorer. It was probably 10 years old. It, it's, it's just taking up space at the cottage, and my father-in-law wants it gone. And I said, well, how much do you want for it? $2,000. So I bought it. <laughs> I got it. And there's nothing wrong with this vehicle. It's worth way more than that. But that's just how they operated. He had more money than he knew what to do with. He could buy whatever he wanted. He had no worry about what the future held. As far as the world was concerned, Bob had hit the bullseye. He'd gone from insignificant to significance, from poor to rich, from powerless to power, uh, from not being very important to hanging around, and he could name drop some really important people that were more in his father-in-law's circle, but, but that became his social circle uh, as well. I found myself envying what Bob had. 
And it caused me to realize where I really fit on the world scale of ultimate significance. The world scale that's often measured in money and in status. There's a question I want to ask you this morning, and it's a question that really undergirds what we're going to be talking about today and next week as well. And so sometimes you hear whoever's preaching ask a question, yeah, whatever, and you just don't even think about it. I want you to think about it. What do you look to as the measure of your ultimate significance? What is the gauge? What is that measure that you look to to find your ultimate significance? Maybe I've asked that question and going, well, I don't, I don't think I can answer that question. I've never really thought about it. Maybe there isn't that one thing, person, possession, activity. But you're wrong. Because there is. Because whatever it is that is the measure by which you determine your ultimate significance, that is the thing in your life that you spend more time and energy and devotion to than anything else. And whatever it is, whether you consciously or subconsciously believe this, you believe that if you can hit the bullseye in whatever that is, then you will have gained the importance and the significance and maybe even the security that you've longed for. And that's what you'll start to put your trust in. And and so for some, that measure is position. If I could just get that position within my company, if I could just have that title, if I could just have that degree, then I will have arrived. That will be ultimate significance for me. And so for some, it's position. For some, it's possessions. If I can drive the nicest car, that will be ultimate significance for me. If I can have that three-car garage or that cottage or whatever it might be, that will be ultimate significance for me. For some people, it's family. For some people, it's health and and, and physical fitness. But for a lot of people, I think you can narrow it right down to bank account. If I can just hit that magic number, I will have significance. I will have importance. I'll have power. I won't have any needs. My future will be secure. I don't know if you noticed what the title was for this morning. Uh, it, it, it's a, a well-known phrase that's, I guess, kind of asked in the form of a question. But it asks the question, what is it that money can't buy? And we all know what the answer is. What can't money buy? Love. Happiness, happiness right? Sorry. Love, happiness. <laughs> so love can't buy happiness. But I love what somebody did say about it. Love might not be able to buy happiness, but it sure makes misery, misery easier to live with. And, and that's the reality that we all face, right? We live in a world that operates, f- is fueled 
by money. We need money to pay bills. We need money to put food on the table. We need money for clothes. We need money for shelter. And how desperate it is, and I know there are some here and some who might be watching this today or or later online, how desperate a situation to find yourself where you don't have enough money, where every week is a struggle, paying the bills is tough, and how even more desperate it is to be in a situation where not only you don't have enough money, but you don't have the means by which to get money. Being in that desperate situation isn't just desperate. It leaves one feeling powerless and it leaves one feeling insignificant compared to those that have much more than that person or than you may have. You know, if there's anyone that could understand finding themselves in that low situation, it was the people that James writes his letter to. The majority of them anyways. James says in verses 2 through 4 that I looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, that if you're a follower of Jesus, just know this. You're going to face trials of many kinds. And, and, and poverty was a definite trial for many of his readers. Back in the introduction, I was sharing that the Jewish people in James' time were a scattered people. Uh, just because of their Jewishness, they were scattered out of Rome, and they formed these Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire. But if you were a Jew that was a follower of Jesus, you had a double scattering. Not only were you being uh, oppressed and ridiculed and rejected and pushed out of Rome, you found the same treatment in all these little Jewish communities that were popping up throughout the Roman Empire. People wanted nothing to do with you. They wouldn't buy from your business. They wouldn't employ you. You were ridiculed. You were shunned. And so these people that James was writing to knew what it was like to be poor, to feel insignificant, to be powerless. And yet in our text today, James has something really startling to say to them. In fact, it's something that holds true even today. In fact, it's something that holds true not only if you find yourself in similar poverty, but holds true even if you have a lot. And what James says, and I want you to hear this because, again, this is the foundation of what we're going to look at this week and next week. It's going to kind of undergird everything that we say and see. What James says to them is, if you are a follower of Jesus whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you're powerless, whether you've got great power, whether the world sees you as significant or whether in the eyes of the world you are insignificant, James says, as a follower of Jesus, you have to look beyond what the world says makes you significant. And rather, you need to find your ultimate significance in who you are in Jesus Christ. Poor or rich, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to look beyond the world's standards of ultimate significance and instead find your ultimate significance, your true significance in who you are in Jesus 
and in what Jesus has to say about you. The passage we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks is, is James 1. And if you haven't opened it already, yeah, open uh, to James chapter 1. If someone's using a pew Bible, can you just read out the, the number that James 1 is on? 977. So if you've got a pew Bible in front of you, page 977. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 this week and next week. And today, most likely, we're not going to get beyond verse 9. But I think there's some real powerful truth in verse 9. So I want us to take our time uh, as we walk through it. But let me read 9 through 12 with you. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed are those who persevere under trial because when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, before we get into verse 9 and, and, and really James's word to the poor, uh, there's a couple of interpretive questions about our verses that I think would be good for us to, to answer before we go any further. One of the questions we're really going to be looking at next week, but I'll mention it second. But the first question is this, how do verses 9 through 12 fit into the context of what James has already been saying? And some commentators, and I mentioned this when we introduced our series, some people believe that James, especially in chapter 1, is like at a list of things he wants to mention, kind of like a coach who's doing a pep talk with his team just before they go out onto the ice or out onto the field. And so James would go point one, point two, point three, point four, point five, 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, point five, and then point six, oh, verses 9 through 12. There is some truth in that, but also I do think there is a little bit of connectiveness, whatever that word is. There is a theme that's running through what James is talking about. One of the themes that we've already talked about is about integrity. Remember I asked that question, where's the man and woman of integrity in the church today? And that's a big concern for James right through this whole letter. Integrity. Being wholeheartedly committed and devoted to Jesus, not being double-minded or, or double-souled, not being a hypocrite, not being an undercover Christian. That's one of the themes that runs right through this letter of James. But in verse 12, James mentions trials. And, and if we went back to what Al was talking about in verses 2 through 4, James introduces trials. And so it would seem that James isn't ready to, to leave the topic of trials. And what I want to suggest is what James is saying here is that our socioeconomic position, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, is a trial. And I think if you are poor, if that's the category that you would put yourself in, you can understand how poverty is a trial because it makes life difficult. And we talked about that. Some of these people that James are writing to were, were experiencing such a heavy trial that they were ready 
Well, they were questioning their faith. Some were ready to turn their back on their faith, and others made the decision that they were just going to put their faith inside a box, and they were going to live most of their life outside of the box, and in their private time, in their time where no one was watching, they would open up the box, and that's how they were living. And so, so poverty was a trial, because life was hard. It was difficult. It was desperate for many of the people James is writing to. So again, we can see how being poor, poverty could be considered a trial, but rich? How is being rich a trial? And we're going to talk more about this next week. But what James is going to suggest is that being rich presents you with a temptation, with a a, a never-present lure to move and to compromise your wholehearted devotion and commitment and trust and dependence in Jesus and instead place a lot of those things on yourself and what you've achieved and what you've earned and on your bank account and the possessions and the reason why you have those things. And so there's this ever-present temptation if you are rich to turn from Jesus and turn to those things. But we're going to talk more about that next week. And so that really is the theme that I think we see continuing through chapter 1 as we come to the passage we're going to look at this morning. And then the other question, which we'll talk about more next week, is who are the rich? Because in verse 9, James says, you believers who are poor or who are in who are in humble circumstances, so that's kind of an obvious one. But then in verse 10, he just refers to them, but as to the rich. Is he talking about rich Christians? Is he talking about rich non-Christians? Is he talking to anyone who is rich? And so next week, we'll, we'll talk more about that and, and uh, into the, the uh, interpretation that I would lean towards and uh, we'll probably teach from. Uh, but we'll talk about that next week. But let's look at, at James' word to the poor uh, in verses 9. Now, a couple of weeks ago, after Al spoke and I had the uh, opportunity to facilitate communion, I shared a few sentences where words are in it that don't seem to go together. And I used one example, and I actually relived that example yesterday morning when my wonderful wife was cooking me breakfast, and she said, Brent, would you like some asparagus with your eggs? And I said, no, asparagus is yucky. And Allison said, no, asparagus is good. See, in English, there's something known as a paradox. And a paradox is a statement or a sentence that at face value uh, is seemingly absurd and self-contradictory. But the further you investigate it and the further you hear explanation, it might actually prove to be true. So whether asparagus is good or yucky, the, what is it, the cord is still out or however that saying goes. So I'm not really quite sure what is actually the truth. I have a feeling it's subjective. But there are all sorts of paradoxes in Scripture. Uh, before communion, I looked at the one where it said that, that Jesus endures the cross for the joy that was set before him, cross Enjoy. Al taught from verses 2 through 4 a couple of weeks ago, where it says, consider trials joy, 
How are trials joy? Uh, Throughout Scripture, uh, some examples. When I am weak, then I am strong. The last will be first. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. Paul had nothing yet possessed all things. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we've got all these paradoxes in Scripture. Where at first hearing, it sounds absurd. It sounds crazy, self-contradictory. But the further we investigate it, or the more it's explained to us, the statement may just be true. And in our verse this morning, or in our text for the next couple of weeks, we come across two more paradoxes. James says, and I'll paraphrase it, is that the poor should boast in their high position and the rich should boast in their low position. It sounds absurd. It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems that what James is saying is that there is a richness in poverty and there's a poverty in richness. Like how G.K. Chesterton defines a paradox. He says, a paradox is a truth standing on its head, yelling, look at me. And it's so absurd and crazy, you can't help but look at it. And that's how startling what James is saying in verse 9 is. And we can read it and pass by it so quick and miss the message. But look at it in your Bible. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Other translations. If I can see where I wrote these down. Brothers and sisters who are poor should find satisfaction in their high status. Another translation. Believers who are poor should be glad that God considers them so important. And the Living Bible, which isn't usually my go-to source, uh, I really like how it paraphrases verse 9. A Christian who doesn't amount to much in this world should be glad, for he is great in the Lord's sight. And so is this a paradox? Is it a paradox that the poor should boast, find great pride in their high position and the reverse, that the rich should find pride or should boast in their low position. I said that a paradox is something that when you investigate it or whether when it's further explained, you might just find that it's true. And I think it's unfair when preachers stand before you and share a paradox uh, and then just tell you that it's true and you should just accept it and carry on. So I think it's fair that we break down verse 9. And what is it that James is actually saying? And how can it be true, the paradox of verse 9, especially and specifically, uh, that the poor should boast in their high position. So let's take a look at verse 9 and let's just break it down. Verse 9 begins believers. So it's pretty clear who James is talking to. He's writing to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so what he's got to say here is specifically for believers, but if you're here this morning or if you're listening this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, there are some truths to be gleaned from what James is going to say. And hopefully some truths that are going to whet your appetite for the more that you can have by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And so James says, believers in humble circumstances. So there's that word humble. Your translation may say lowly. Often it's translated poor. What's the word humble mean? What it doesn't refer to is one's character. Often we we use the word humble to think of character. That's not what it's speaking of here. James is using a word that is well-grounded in biblical tradition, well-known in the Old Testament. And remember, James is probably the first writer of a book in the New Testament. He's very well-grounded in Judaism. He'd be well-acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. And so James uses the word humble. And if you went through the Psalms, you would see the word humble many times. The word humble depicts... um, Someone who is seen as insignificant in the world. The word humble is used of someone who is oppressed by the world. So it's often used of widows and orphans. The word humble is used uh, to speak of someone who is a victim of lowly circumstances. In other words, poverty. So the word humble and poor can be exchanged quite easily. So he's talking to believers who find themselves in humble circumstances. And so we put humble and circumstances together, and the easy conclusion is that he's talking to believers who are finding themselves poor. They don't have much money. They're living in poverty. But I don't think we need to limit the definition to that. Because humble circumstances also includes those who would see themselves as being on the low rung of the social ladder. Those who would consider themselves to be second degree, second degree, second class citizens. Those who feel that the world has just totally ignored and discarded them. Those who carry with them the stains from, from a sinful past. Those who have relationship scars. Those who have financial struggles. Those who have disabilities. Those who are victims of prejudice, whether it be age, whether it be race. And all of a sudden, the category opens up. It's not just meaning you don't have enough money to pay for your next meal. Because that probably excludes most of us. But as I define what the words humble circumstances, that phrase actually mean and what it entails, I think there's probably more than just a few here that now go, wait a second. James just might be talking to me because I know what it's like to feel like a second-class citizen. I know what it's like to feel insignificant. I know what it's like to be carrying the baggage from my past And what does James say? What is James, what's a startling thing James says to them? He says, if that is your situation, you need to look beyond your lowly position here on earth 
and instead focus. In fact, he says, find pride. Boast in your high position. And the word high there literally means in your exalted to the heavenlies position. What in the world is James saying? Is James saying that you should rejoice that you can't put food on your table for your family? That you should find great pride in the fact that your car is being towed out of your driveway by the leasing company? That you should be boasting about the fact that you have no idea where this month's hydro bill, the money for it is going to come from? No, that's not what James is saying. What James is saying is that even if that is the case, even if you are that poor, even if you're going, James, you're talking about me, even if that's the case, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have great reason to rejoice. You might be poor, you might be insignificant, you might be powerless in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, you're a treasure. You are a son or daughter of the king. You have been made priests and kings. You have been made a joint heir with Jesus. I love how one author put it. The world might be yelling out at you, you're nothing but a bum. And then you hear the voice of God, wait a second. That's my child. If you're a parent, I'm sure it's happened to all of you. It's happened to us. When one of your children comes home from school or they phone and they burst into tears getting out of the bus because a friend has said something hurtful. You're not attractive. You're not as smart as everybody else. You're uncoordinated. You're horrible at sports. Whatever it might be, and your child is heartbroken, and you sit down with them, and you put your arm around with them, and you try to get them to raise their sights. And you explain to them that often your friends are short-sighted, that, that they put value in, in, in the wrong things, that we love you. And even though your friends are fickle, we'll always love you unconditionally, no matter what. And we explain to them, you know what? Over the years, you're going to find your friends are going to change. But we'll always be here for you. And if you're a really good parent and you take advantage of this opportunity, you tell them that there is a God who loves them even more than we could ever possibly love them. And that's what James is doing here. He's writing to these desperate, struggling believers who are finding themselves in the lowest of circumstances. And he's saying, don't let your bank account, 
Don't let your position in society, don't let what the world tells you be the final word about yourself. Rather, the opinion that matters, the security that will last forever, the the joy that is true joy is found in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The opinion that matters. Just think of that phrase just for a second. What is the opinion that matters most to you? Because there is an opinion. It might come from an individual. It might come from a group. It might come from a, from a part of society. There is a, an opinion that matters most to you because it drives and motivates you. It might determine what you wear, what you do, what you drive, how you spend your social time, how you look. There is an opinion that matters most to you. And what James wants you to know is the opinion that matters most is God's opinion. God's opinion about you. God's opinion about me. And what James wants us to know is that that God doesn't keep score like we do. He's not impressed by the same things that we may be impressed by. I tell you the story about Bob, who I hired and I couldn't help myself, but I was impressed with his money and his position and and all the things that went along with it. And and we find ourselves falling for that. We're, We're attracted to the things that money can buy. God isn't impressed by those things. That's why the ground at the cross is level. Because it doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you're powerless, if the world thinks you're significant or whether the world thinks you're insignificant. At the foot of the cross, we're all on level ground. We stand before the cross with our hands empty and our pockets inside out because there's nothing that we've got to give, nothing that we've achieved, nothing that we've inherited that we can offer that gets us one inch closer to heaven. Our net worth does not determine our, our eternal destination. God isn't impressed by all of these things that the world is impressed in. Now, as I was, I was working on this, this, this song that I learned in Sunday school, we used to sing it even as adults. Uh, haven't heard it for a long time, but the song we learned in Sunday school, and I'm just going to say the first couple of lines of it, and then you're going to think of it for the rest of the day, but uh, it goes, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. Right? That's that, That's God. Like, he's the one who spoke creation into being. He's the one who knows the number of hairs on my head, which might not be so super impressive, but he knows the number of hairs on people that got lots of hair. He knows the number of whatever they are, the sand on the beach. That's the God who loves us. That's the God we've committed our life to. Do you think he's impressed by the fact that I might be able to drive a Tesla? Do you think he's impressed that we've got three-door garage or we've got a summer house? Do Do you think he's impressed that we can name drop important people that are part of our social calendar? Those are the things that impress God. And the reverse is equally as true. 
God doesn't ignore us or turn his back on us because we're a single parent and we're having a hard time feeding our family. God doesn't kick us out of heaven because we're homeless on earth. He's not embarrassed because we can't afford a car and we have to take public transport. And that's what James wants us to understand. If you're a follower, in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you are rich. You might be the poorest person here on earth, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you are richer than the richest person here on earth. You're a child of the Father. Your sins are forgiven. You're united with Christ. You're, you're led by the Spirit. You're made joint heirs with Jesus. Is that sinking in? Because I'm not sure that our identity in Christ is something that we allow to sink in all the time. I know I don't, because if it did, I would live a totally different life than I do now, of who we are in Jesus. An author wrote this, when a poor person trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord, they instantly become the heir of a vast fortune. A child of the king of kings with access to all the king's resources, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That person is now in Christ, which means everything that is true of Christ is true of us. In Romans, Paul, I think it's Romans 8, Paul says that if you are a child of God, you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, talking about the riches of Jesus, Paul says they're boundless. They're beyond our comprehension. They are, the depth of his riches is so deep, we can't get to the bottom of it. That's how rich Jesus is. And then in the passage that Al read for us, we read that some of those riches are imparted to us that we are chosen, that we are saved, that we are forgiven, that we're given the Holy Spirit, that we're given an inheritance. We are rich. Not necessarily in the way that the world defines riches, but we are rich and we have ultimate significance in a way that God defines it. And it's his opinion, his opinion and his scoring system that matters most. I just want to conclude something I read. I told Roy and Rose, I was reading the book by Alex. Uh, Alex Phillips, who's passed away, is Rose's niece's uh, late husband and was the chaplain at People's uh, School. And they gave Jack this book a while ago, and it's been sitting on a coffee table in our living room. And I just picked it up last week and started reading through it as I was thinking about this passage. And I thought, oh, wow, this speaks right to what James wants us to understand. And this is just a devotional sermons uh, from concerning Daniel. And uh, Alex writes this, let us now return to the text of Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar swept into Judah, he was very particular as to whom he would take into exile in Babylon. We see that King Nebuchadnezzar sought to exile members of the royal family, members of the nobility, youth without blemish, those who had good appearance, those who were skillful, and those who were endowed with knowledge. These were the people whom King Nebuchadnezzar deemed as important. 
For Nebuchadnezzar, what made people important was their wealth, their status, their appearance, and their intellect. However, the biblical text bears out the true significance of what it means to be important. And this is what really caught me when Alex wrote this. The root of the word important is derived from the Latin porter, which means to carry. The prefix im is a derivative of the word in. Therefore, if I understand this correctly, something which is important is something which is carried in. It is not dragged in, it's not pulled in, it's not kicked in, it's not pushed in, it's not rolled in, it is carried in. Importance is bound up in the act of being carried. Pay attention then to what God says to his people. This is from Isaiah. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me, from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. If you're in the family of God, God has carried you since your birth, and he promises to carry you into your old age. From the cradle cradle to the grave, God's people are carried in his arms. That alone, not status or wealth, grades or degrees, profession, or words, not book sales or audience size, is what makes you and me important. Arnie and Katie, come on out.